The Man of God Network exists to help the church in her mission to identify and equip qualified, faithful men for the gospel ministry and for the recovery of biblical reformation in our day. It's our joy to provide you with resources that both encourage you and edify you as you seek to build Christ's church where you are, to the end that He is better known, loved, and exalted. We appreciate the support of our listeners. To learn more about how you can help us accomplish our mission, visit manofgodnetwork.com. The following recording is from the 2023 Covenant Conference on the subject of How Then Should We Worship? This conference was held in Louisville, Kentucky on March 23rd to the 25th and featured sermons by Conrad Mbewe, Sam Waldron, John Miller, Tom Nettles, Jim Sevastio, and Scott O'Neill. Our God is holy, 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 and we should carefully consider how he has instructed us to approach him in worship. We hope you are edified and helped by the following message. God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, we echo the words of the Apostle Paul and plead with you to give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ, that we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which he has called us, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Would you do this by your word and spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, over against our materialistic and naturalistic world that says, seeing is believing, or what you see is what you get, the Christian faith stands in stark contrast and resolute opposition. After all, you remember what the Apostle Paul says. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, we are those who walk by faith and not by sight. And the writer of Hebrews tells us, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You see, as Christians, we recognize that there is more than meets our physical eyes in this universe. There's far more going on than all of the troubles and the trials that we see and feel in our fallen world. And as believers, it is seen with the eyes of faith that helps us to endure, that helps us to persevere through all the trials that we suffer. Again, listen to the Apostle Paul. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Afflictions, difficulties, those are the things that we easily see things that you go through in your life that can dominate your vision, that diagnosis of cancer, that struggle with finances, the challenges at home with children or other kinds of difficulties. These things dominate our vision. But the eternal weight of glory? That's only seen with the eyes of faith. 
And isn't that what Asaph experienced in Psalm 73? You remember how that psalm begins. He, he almost slipped because he was one who saw the prosperity of the wicked. He saw the difficulties of the righteous. And he said in his heart, all in vain have I kept my heart pure. All in vain have I washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. You see, he was looking at his life through the eyes of the flesh until there was a change until something happened. What happened? He went into the sanctuary of God. There he discerned the end of the wicked. There he discerned the end of the righteous with the eyes of faith. Listen to how that psalm ends, Psalm 73, verse 18 and following. He says this about the wicked. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. And then what he sees about the righteous. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, he understood. He came to see the wicked go to destruction. They go to that separation from the blessed presence of the Lord to only know his hot wrath and displeasure for all eternity. But the righteous, the one who in verse 1 is pure in heart, God is his portion. God is his refuge. And he will be received by the Lord into glory to be near to God and his blessed presence forever. This is what Paul means by the eternal weight of glory. It is, as he says in that other part of 2 Corinthians, it is with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. It is basking in the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is that beatific vision in which our souls are satisfied by the communion we have with our triune God in the special presence of God, on the mountain of God, in the house of God forever. You have to see, dear Christian, that is what you get a foretaste of every Lord's Day. That's what happens when we go to the sanctuary of God. Every Lord's Day when you gather as a local church in the name of Christ to worship our triune God, you meet in the glory of the special presence of God while here on earth. Even as you look forward to the fullness of eternal glory to come. But far too often, beloved, feel it in my own soul, we come to worship and our spiritual vision is clouded. It's obscured by the things of this earth, by the worries of this life, by the concerns that fill our minds and what we need. What we need is to recapture by faith what is really and truly taking place 
to have our spiritual eyes open to the unseen realities that are eternal. That like the man in 1 Corinthians 14, that unbeliever who comes into the house of God and there has his heart, the secrets of his heart disclosed, what does he do? He falls on his face, he worships God and declares, God is really in this place. That's what we need. And it's my burden then in this message to help us by God's grace in at least some small measure to have our spiritual eyes opened anew and afresh to the immense privilege that we have of worshiping and communing with our triune God in the glory of his special presence. The title of this message is The Worship of God in Heaven and on Earth. And so, two simple points. The worship of God in heaven, and then secondly, the worship of God on earth. So let's start by thinking about the worship of God in heaven. And to grasp the worship of God in heaven, you have to first understand what heaven is. And we'll see in a moment that it's something created by God. But that means that there was a time, if we can even use that word, when heaven did not exist. What did exist? God. God. Before heaven was created, our eternal God existed in triune glory and bliss. And this is where you must begin. Consider the words of the Psalm of Moses. Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you've had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God's eternity transcends the seeming permanence of the earth itself. Mountains are that which we think are permanent, that are enduring, that are lasting. They're majestic, immovable to us. But even the mountains had a beginning, but God did not. He has no beginning and he will have no end. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. Listen to how Gerhardus Voss talks about the eternity of God. What is God's eternity? That attribute of God whereby he is exalted above all limitations of time and all succession of time and in a single indivisible present possesses the content of his life perfectly and as such is the cause of time. Leads us to ask this question, if we can even think this way. What, what did our God do before the creation of time, the creation of heaven, the creation of earth? Well, God eternally existed in his triune glory and bliss. And we can catch at least a glimpse of this in Jesus' own high priestly prayer in John 17. You remember how he says, Their father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed, before anything else ever existed. Father, Son, and Spirit, the one God in eternal bliss. One divine essence in three persons existing in eternal glory. Listen to how Lane Tipton puts this. In the fullness 
of the divine essence. The persons indwell one another in the perfect beatitude of the divine life, filled with glory and delight. Thus, at the heart of the self-contained triune God is an immutable, personal, and mutual delight that is from everlasting to everlasting. The Father delights in the Son, the Son delights in the Father, and this delight knows no beginning or end. This is the glory of God, the glory he began to reveal when he created the heavens and the earth, and the glory that predominates the whole of biblical revelation. So you see then with creation, the Lord begins to manifest, to reveal his eternal glory. Not that creation adds to God's glory. Puritan Edward Lee said this, God's glory is the infinite excellency of his divine essence. That means you cannot add to it. God is perfect in being. Our own confession of faith, the 1689 in chapter two, paragraph two says this, God having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself is alone in and unto himself all sufficient. Not standing in need of any creature, which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. So creation, you see, is part of how God manifests his own glory. He makes it known. And what is it that God creates to manifest his glory? Well, you know how the Bible begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But let me ask you this. What is meant by the heavens in Genesis 1-1? We might think that this is referring to what we commonly call the heavens, that is the realm of the sun, moon, and stars. But that's the visible heavens, you see. And God creates that on the second day. What's referred to in Genesis 1-1 must be something else for it occurs in the beginning. Again, listen to Gerhardus Voss, he says, in the beginning means before all things. Thus, it does not refer back to subsequent deeds of creation, but speaks of the absolute beginning of time. So what the heavens spoken of here in Genesis 1, 1, what are they? Well, as Dr. Waldron said yesterday, we should let Scripture interpret Scripture. So consider the divine commentary given by the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1. He says this, 1 verse 15 to 17, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The he in verse 15, refers to the beloved Son in verse 13, which is the one in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins in verse 14. It is none other than Jesus. But in speaking of Jesus as the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation, as the one who's before all things, Paul is not speaking of Christ in his incarnation. Much less is he saying that Jesus is the highest created being. No. He is speaking of Jesus as the pre-existent second person of the Trinity as creator. Listen to G.K. Beale. He says this, These names of firstborn and the one before all things in Colossians were not merely intended to indicate Christ's temporal priority to the old creation, but 
primarily underscored his sovereignty over it. The pre-temporal connotation does not indicate that Christ was the very beginning part of creation, but that he was born before it, rightly in the sense of eternal generation of the Son, which places Christ as separate from the rest of creation. Christ's separateness from creation and existence before that creation are underscored by the affirmation that he's the agent of creation and thus the creator. And what does the creator create? All things. Things in heaven, things on earth, things that are visible, things that are invisible. And right there, you have a beautiful chiastic structure. (laughs) I get excited about those. Guys who are in my Old Testament intro class know that. (laughs) But what you see is heaven corresponds to that which is invisible. Earth to what is visible. And so when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that is, he created the invisible things and the visible things. There are two realms then, the invisible heavens and the visible universe. These invisible heavens are called in the scripture things like this, the highest heaven, the third heaven, paradise, the heaven of heavens. For example, listen to Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6, where the Levites are there speaking to the people. They say this to the Lord, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the hosts of heaven worship you. Listen to how William Ames, that Puritan theologian, describes this. He says, the highest heaven is the dwelling place of God's holiness, full of all things which pertain to eternal blessedness. Here, the majesty of God presents itself to be seen, as it were, face to face. And he goes on to say, this is the heaven meant in Genesis 1.1. The invisible heavens, it's a created thing, where God's glory is manifested in a created thing, that is heaven, which is invisible to us. And what can we know then about this distinct, created, invisible realm that we call the heavens? Well, we can only know what God has revealed to us, what he's revealed to his prophets and apostles and recorded for us in his word. And perhaps the most well-known vision of heaven, the highest heavens, is that of Isaiah chapter 6. You go ahead and turn there. Isaiah chapter 6. Know this passage well, but let me read those first five verses for us again. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Notice what is in the highest heavens. The first thing that you must notice is this, the presence of the Lord is there. He says, I saw the Lord. Meredith Klein says this, 
totally dominating the scene in biblical revelations of heaven is the presence of God, the God of glory. No creature can see God, who is spirit, in his transcendence above and apart from all creation, visible and invisible, but the eternal unseen one does manifest his personal presence within his creation. And he does it there in heaven. God's special presence is made manifest in the heaven of heavens. Notice what else we learn about the heaven of heavens in Isaiah 6. We notice that it's a royal palace and a holy temple in which God dwells. I saw the Lord seated upon what? A throne. And his robe filled what? The temple. Isaiah will go on to say, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. God is on his throne in heaven. And this king is the thrice holy one, so his presence sanctifies the place and makes it holy so that it is at the same time not only a royal palace, but a holy temple. The same union of throne and temple is seen throughout the scriptures. For example, listen to Psalm 11, verse 4. David writes, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Heaven is a royal temple dwelling place of God. Then thirdly, notice this about the highest heavens. The language is the train of the Lord's robe fills the temple and the language of the house was filled with smoke. What does that make you think of? Well, the language of the robe filling the temple, it's it's reminiscent of other passages. Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2 say this, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Hmm. The heavens are like a tent. What else do we know that's a tent dwelling of God? Hmm. The tabernacle. There's a connection then between the language of the robe, garment as a covering, and the idea of a tent. It does recall the tabernacle, the tent in which the presence of God dwelt in the midst of his people. Furthermore, the language of the smoke filling the temple recalls what occurred at the completion of the tabernacle. When the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle with such a cloud that Moses couldn't even enter. The same thing occurred at the completion of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. And the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. But here's what we have to remember when we think of the tabernacle, when we think of the temple. What does the writer to the Hebrews remind us? The tabernacle and the temple are only earthly copies of heavenly realities. Speaking of priests on earth, he says in Hebrews 8.5, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Do you understand what the highest heavens is? It's the reality, not the copy. It's the true temple of the Lord, the created realm in which the glory of the eternal God is made manifest. And in the absolute beginning, the Lord creates the highest heavens and the spirit of God fills it with God's glory. That's what Genesis 1-2 is saying. 
Genesis 1-2 says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Oh, let me rely again on Lane Tipton. He says this about Genesis 1-2. Notice the Spirit hovers from above. That is, he hovers from the archetypal heavenly tent, which he fills with the glory of God. The original hovering presence of the glory of God is in the highest heavens, which is the abode of the Spirit. In other words, the heavenly tent of God is the place where the Spirit is found, setting the place ablaze with the glory of the triune God. One other thing to notice from Isaiah 6. Who else inhabits heaven? The seraphim. Angels. Angels inhabit the heavens. They behold the glory of God. Now, angels are created beings. We need to remember that. That's clear from Psalm 148, for example. It says, Praise him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created. William Ames says this, that the angels were created on the first day with the highest heavens appears first from the likeness of their nature to that of heaven, and second, in that they are said to have applauded God, as it were, in the creation of other things. You remember what the Lord says to Job in Job 38? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? What else does he say in the midst of talking about creation, the creation of the visible earth and the visible heavens? What does he say but this? On what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And there, sons of God is referring to the angels. They observed the work of God in creating, and they rejoiced and praised God. Now, there is much that we do not understand about angels, and we don't have time to go through all the Bible and what it teaches about angels. We know this, they're awesome beings, and anytime a human encounters an angel, we are afraid, filled with fear and awe, and tempted to fall down and worship the angel, just like John did in the book of Revelation. But a helpful summary of the biblical teaching about the creation of angels is found in the Westminster Larger Catechism. Question 16, how did God create angels? Answer, God created all the angels, spirits, immortal, holy, excelling in knowledge, mighty in power, to execute his commandments and to praise his name, yet subject to change. There it talks about how there can be fallen angels. It points then to two main things that angels do, and the first is this, they praise God's name. That's what we saw in Isaiah 6. The seraphim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We can see this throughout the scriptures. We see the same angelic praise in heaven again in the vision that was given to the apostle John in the book of Revelation when he was in the spirit on the Lord's day, no less. And he sees the heavenly throne room of God opened and God seated on the throne and cherubim this time, four living creatures with six wings full of eyes all around within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This then gives us a picture of the worship of God in heaven at the absolute beginning. 
Yet, this is only really covering the first two verses of the Bible. I've only done Genesis 1 and 2. I've got a long way to go. <laughs> and we're reminded that the angels not only worship God, but the second main thing that they do is they carry out what God commands. In particular, they offer obedient service to God on earth. It's one of the amazing things. We were reminded about Jacob's dream where he sees a stairway to heaven. And do you remember what was going on on the stairway of heaven? Angels were going up and down. It was a picture of how God is active in the world. And his angels are his servants to minister on the earth. To do things like this, to guard God's holy places. As cherubim guard Eden, the way back to Eden, so to speak. Communicating God's word in the sense that they bring messages. They're messengers, like to Daniel, to Zacharias, to Mary. They care for God's children. That was part of the purpose of Jacob's dream for him to know that God is caring for him, to protect God's servants as he did with the apostles and let them, an angel came and let them out of jail, Acts 5. To execute God's judgment as angels struck down King Herod in Acts 12. To serve God's son incarnate as throughout his whole ministry, you see angels ministering to him. That points to the fact that God not only created the highest heavens, that is the invisible heavens, but also the visible earth. And that leads us to our second point, because God is to be worshipped not only in heaven, but also on earth. Now here, I can only provide the briefest of sketches, for we're talking about Genesis 1, verse 3, forward. So in brief, I want to outline uh, the worship of God on earth in its three main epics of history, okay? And the first is the worship of God in the Garden of Eden. From Genesis 1, 3 onward, God forms and fills the visible creation. And there's a clear and definite structure to the way God creates. You know how this is. The first three days is where he forms what was formless. He creates these great realms, the visible heavens, and then the sky and the sea, and then the land. And then the next three days, he fills these Habitations with inhabitants. The visible heavens with the sun, moon, and stars. The sea and the sky with fish and birds. And land with animals and, of course, mankind. Made in God's image, male and female. And then there's the seventh day. God rested and blessed the Sabbath day. It's fascinating to note the structure of Genesis 1, how even Genesis 1-1, the first verse, in the Hebrew language is seven words. That's deliberate. Helps us to understand there is a telos, there's an end, there's a goal to creation. And that's why it's so important when we're speaking about creation, we don't just speak about the six days, we also speak about the seventh day, the Sabbath day, because that points to the end, the goal, the telos of all creation. We'll come back to that in a moment. Now, Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, is also written in such a way to point to the cosmos as a kind of tabernacle and temple. Listen to what Michael Morales says. In the ancient Near East, the analogy between the cosmos and the temple was commonplace. The cosmos was understood as a large temple and the temple as a small cosmos. Approaching the biblical account of creation, there are various indications that such a parallel between cosmos and temple, or the tabernacle, is in view. 
For example, the spirit or wind of God, the Ruach Elohim, as a phrase appears in Genesis 1-2 for the construction of the cosmos, in Exodus 31-3 and 35-31, it appears for the construction of the tabernacle. Moreover, the spirit's endowment of Bezalel, the chief artisan of the tabernacle, is described in terms of wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, Exodus 31-3. The same attributes by which God is said to have fashioned the cosmos from Proverbs chapter 3. Yahweh by wisdom founded the earth, and he established the heavens by understanding. By his knowledge, the deeps were broken up. What's the point? The point is this. The earth is also a tabernacle, a temple. The earth is to be a place that is filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But how is that to take place? Enter Genesis chapter 2. God creates Adam as the first earthly son of God. And he forms him out of the dust of the ground, breathes life into him by his spirit, and takes him and places him in the garden in Eden. Now, we can learn from other passages of Scripture, Ezekiel 28, that the Garden of Eden was on a mountain. It is a temple garden on the top of the mountain of God. Michael Morales says, while Genesis 1 portrays creation as a tabernacle, Genesis 2 and 3 portrays the Garden of Eden as something of an archetypal holy of holies, the place of most intimate communion and fellowship with Yahweh God. And there, on the top of the mountain, in the Garden of Eden, Adam is to serve as the first priest king. As has been pointed out by many, the language of Genesis 2, uh, verse 15, where it says he is to work and to keep or guard, is the same language that's used in Numbers for the priests and Levites who are to guard the tabernacle from anything unclean entering it. Adam was to do the same because the Garden of Eden was like the Holy of Holies. Furthermore, if you connect this with the mission, as G.K. Beale has ably done, you see what Adam's further mission is. Beale says, The intention seems to be that Adam was to widen the boundaries of the garden in ever-increasing circles by extending the order of the garden sanctuary into the inhospitable outer spaces. The outward expansion would especially be by Adam's progeny born in his image and thus reflecting God's image and the light of his presence as they continued to obey the mandate given to their parents and went out to subdue the outer country. Adam was to expand the borders of the garden so that the presence of the glory of the Lord would cover the whole face of the earth. Furthermore, Adam is to do this, to do all of this, by offering perfect, exact, pure, and entire obedience to the Lord, according to what we call the covenant of works or the covenant of life. Adam's not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He's to love and obey God for God's glory alone. And if Adam does this, he will be allowed to eat from the tree of life, which represents what? Eternal life a higher state than that which Adam was created in. In other words, he would enter into an eternal Sabbath rest in the presence of God in the highest heaven, represented in the seventh day weekly Sabbath. But we all know what happened, don't we? 
he did not obey. He sinned. He plunged all of creation under the wrath and curse of God, and Adam and Eve were exiled out of the Holy of Holies in the Garden of Eden. But thankfully, that is not the end of the story. But the question comes, can sinful man ever be allowed to enter into the special presence of God in the highest heaven? After all, Psalm 24 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to that what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And that's none of us. All of us who've been born from Adam in the ordinary way, we are all sinners defiled in heart and conduct. But praise God, he has made a way. He has opened up the way back into the blessed presence of God through a redeemer. And he teaches us about this way through first the picture book of the Old Testament and then the reality of it in the New Testament. So let's now move from worship of God in the Garden of Eden to the worship of God in the Old Covenant, the types and shadows, the copies and pictures which teach us about the way back to God. And you know this, after the fall, mankind made attempts to ascend to heaven himself. Isn't that what the Tower of Babel is all about from one perspective? Babel, you remember, means the gate of God. It means the gate of heaven. They're building a tower. They're building their own mountain to get back to the highest heavens. But God comes down and judges, scatters, because man can never get back to God on his own or in his own strength or on his own way. Only by God coming down. God coming down to rescue, to redeem, and to lift us up to himself to the highest heaven. That's how we'll be saved. And that's what's pictured in the Old Covenant. And we'll pick it up at the beginning of the book of Exodus. What happens? The children of Israel are in bondage. They're in slavery to Egypt, a Pharaoh who did not remember Joseph. And they cry out in their anguish. It doesn't say they cry out to the Lord, but it does say they cry out. But the Lord hears their cry, and he remembers his covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he acts to redeem them. And so he meets Moses in the burning bush. Take off your sandals, for this is holy ground. And he calls him, and he tells him that he is the I am who I am, and you are to go and be my servant to lead my people out of Egypt. There, the very same mountain that they will return to, God appears in that theophany. The Lord redeems Israel then, we know, with his mighty hand and outstretched arm with the ten plagues, that last plague being the Passover where he saves from the angel of death all the firstborn of Israel by the blood of the Passover lamb. And then they're taken out of Egypt and they cross the Red Sea as their enemies drown in God's judgment. But that's not the end of the story, you see. There's a goal, an end, a telos, to their redemption. It's not just to get them out of Egypt. You remember, there by the Red Sea, Moses sings this great song, and at the end of the song, this is what he says, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. 
You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Redemption has a goal, and that goal is to be in the presence of God on his holy mountain. And so there's a movement from the Red Sea. It's a movement through the wilderness, then to a mountain, Mount Sinai again, and then eventually through the wilderness again to the temple, the promised land. Think about this, through the wilderness to Mount Sinai. They leave the Red Sea and they go then to Mount Sinai. And that's the mountain, you remember, where God appeared not only to Moses, he did appear to him in the burning bush, but when all of Israel's come out, God appears to all Israel. There God covenants with Israel. There God appears to Israel on the top of the mountain in fire, smoke, thunder, and God speaks so that his people hear him from the top of the mountain. But who could actually go to the top of the mountain? Only Moses. There's three levels at Mount Sinai, right? The bottom where only consecrated people of Israel could go, but there's a barrier. They couldn't actually go up onto the mountain. Only the elders could go halfway up, and there, remember, they had that covenant meal with God in Exodus 24. But only Moses could go to the top. You see, what happens at Mount Sinai is the very pattern that we see in the tabernacle and temple, where you have a courtyard that only consecrated Israelites can go in, and then you have a holy place where you can have priests, but then there's the Holy of Holies, which only the high priest can go in. And Moses goes up this mountain seven times. Seven. And he receives instructions, and some of the most important instructions he receives is instructions for the tabernacle. Much of the rest of the book of Exodus is all about that. Exodus 25, verse 8 says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Do you understand then what the tabernacle is? It's a portable Sinai. It's so that the special presence of God, which was revealed to them at the top of Mount Sinai, could now go with them as they travel through the wilderness. And God could dwell in the midst of them in the Holy of Holies. At the end of the book of Exodus, as I've already mentioned, the tabernacle is complete and it's constructed exactly as the Lord commanded and the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. But the surprise ending of the book of Exodus is this. Moses cannot enter. He can't go in. What's going on? Well, that's why you have the book of Leviticus. And it begins with all the required sacrifices in chapters 1 to 7. And then how the priests must be consecrated in chapter 8. And finally, after that instruction, Aaron and his sons are consecrated and they offer sacrifices in chapter 9 of Leviticus. And what happens? The glory of the Lord appears to the people and fire comes from heaven to consume the burnt offering. God is in the midst of his people. But then, what happens in Leviticus 10? You know what happens. 
Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, offer strange fire, that which is not commanded by God. And the fire of the Lord comes down and consumes them. Now, this new tabernacle that's to be this new meeting place between God and man on the earth is defiled. It's defiled by sin because Nadab and Abihu have sinned and it's defiled by their dead bodies. What's to become of God's people and dwelling in God's presence? What can be done? Well, that's where Leviticus 10 to 15 comes in. And we're given laws of what is clean and unclean so that the people will understand that what's unclean cannot be in the special presence of the Lord and live. It points to the reality of sin, remaining sin and defilement. And the tabernacle itself must be consecrated and cleansed all over again. You see in the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, the people of God cannot enter into the most holy place. In fact, it's only the high priest who can enter the most holy place, and that only once a year. When? On the Day of Atonement. Which, guess what chapter that comes in Leviticus? The very next one, Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16 is the center of the book of Leviticus, and in fact, it is the very center of the whole of the Pentateuch. It is the answer to the question, what is the way back to God into the Holy of Holies for the people of God? And that answer is, it's through a high priest bringing in the blood of the sin atoning sacrifice to the mercy seat of the Lord in the Holy of Holies. But not in the mere copy. It's gotta be in the real temple. Now, of course, we know the rest of the story of the Old Testament, don't we? Eventually, the people of Israel move on from Mount Sinai. They go through the wilderness, and they go into the promised land. And at the height of the kingdom, Solomon is king, the son of David who builds the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, the place where God chose to place his name. And there's great joy, and the glory of the Lord fills the temple. But there's still sin. Solomon himself turns away from God to all the idols and false gods of his foreign wives. Israel and Judah continue down the road of sin, idolatry, and covenant infidelity, and all the covenant curses come upon them, and they are sent away out of the land again into exile, just like Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. And even though they return to the promised land, they never fully return to God. So that at the days of Jesus, the religious leaders, scribes, Sadducees, the Pharisees, while they're there at the temple, that rebuilt temple, they're just holding to the outer shell of the worship of God and do not worship God from the heart. So the question remains, is there a way for sinners to return to God? Is there any way that we can ascend to the mountain of the Lord to see his glory in the highest heaven? Praise God, the answer is yes. But it's through a better covenant with a better mediator, what we call the new covenant. And that's the third epic I want us to consider finally, the worship of God in the new covenant. And here enters the Redeemer. 
Jesus Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, son of Abraham, son of David. He is the last Adam who is the faithful and true son of God. And he has come to represent his people, to redeem us not from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to sin. To bring us then all the way home to God in heaven. How? As our sinless substitute and perfect representative. You see, at his baptism, the Father declares Jesus to be his beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. And Jesus, the one who is the true temple, the true temple of God, is filled with the Spirit of God without measure so that he may be the one through whom God's glory is displayed. Then Jesus, full of the Spirit, you know, is led into the wilderness by the Spirit as our representative to face the temptations of Satan. And in each one, he succeeds where Israel and Adam failed. It's fascinating. The order in which those temptations occur in Luke's gospel follows the order of the movement of Israel. Where's the first temptation? It's in the wilderness. And what did Israel do in the wilderness but grumble and complain? What did Jesus do? He trusts his heavenly Father. Then Satan takes him to a mountain. What did Israel do on Mount Sinai? They committed idolatry with the golden calf. But Jesus worships God alone. Then this, Satan takes Jesus to the temple. What does Israel do there but test God over and over again with their idolatry? And Jesus does not put God to the test. Jesus remains faithful and true. He's the perfect righteous one who has perfect righteousness to impute to all who trust in him. He is therefore qualified as well to be our Passover lamb. And that's what he did at the cross. When he took the wrath, that our sins deserve, so that we could be washed, we could be cleansed. And the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom, so that on that very day, he can open paradise and even say to the thief on the cross who believed in him, today you will be with me in paradise, in the heaven of heavens. And our resurrected Lord Jesus he has now the one who has ascended to the highest heavens. And he is seated there at the right hand of God right now. And from there, on the day of Pentecost, he poured out his Holy Spirit on his church, which is the new covenant temple on earth now. The glory of the Lord filled his temple in Acts 2. So, beloved, if you're in Christ, you're one who's been redeemed. But right now, you're in your wilderness wandering. We are wandering in the wilderness. But praise God, we have a portable tabernacle, as it were. We have God dwelling in our midst. We have a temple. We have a tabernacle. We have a mountain to go to that we get to go to every single Sabbath day. And it's from there, as the great hymn writer says, that on top of Pisgah's mountain, we view our promised land. You see, we have a wilderness we're in. There's a mountain for us 
And there is a temple, a final temple that we're going to. One last passage, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. This is a description of what privilege we have every Lord's Day. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is what's happening on the Lord's Day. In our formal gatherings as the church in Jesus' name, we are gathering together and lifted up by faith to Mount Zion. We don't come to Mount Sinai. We don't come to that physical copy shadow. We come to the reality by faith. And you notice what we come to. We come to angels who are ceaselessly worshiping God. We come to the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, that assembly. That is the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This is one of the, one of the most sweet things for those who've, who've lost their loved ones. Um, my time in Carlisle, I think I've done 24 funerals in the last six years. And over Christmas, one of the men in our church, his, his wife of many years passed away. And I was making this point in a, in a message and he said this was the most comforting thing for him in his grief to remember that when he comes on the Lord's day to worship the Lord, he comes to Mount Zion and joins with the spirit of his wife made perfect. Amen. Worshiping Jesus. This is what we come to. We come to God. We come to Jesus, our mediator, who's at the right hand of God and who is the ultimate worship leader in all of our services. And we come to the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does the blood of Abel speak? You remember Genesis chapter 4 where Cain slays his brother Abel. And God says that his blood has soaked the ground and it's crying out to him. And what is it crying out? Justice. Give me justice. But what does the blood of Jesus cry out? Mercy, forgive. Notice Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, 
Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. This is what we're doing on the Lord's Day. Christ has opened up this new and living way to the real temple, to the real glory of God in the highest heaven. This is what we experience. This is what it's about. And that's why he goes on to say this, let us draw near with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, this is the privilege of the Sabbath day, that we can be in God's presence in our wilderness to have that foretaste of the great day. Do you think this way, beloved? That your worship of God on the Lord's day is a foretaste of the highest heaven, which will come in its fullness when Christ returns. Indeed, heaven will come down to earth. Isn't that what the new heavens and new earth is? Revelation 21 says that he sees the holy city coming down out of heaven. And then he describes the holy city and it's a perfect cube. What's the only other thing in scripture that's a perfect cube? The holy of holies. The whole earth will then be the holy of holies, which was the plan from the beginning. Ephesians 1.10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. There it is. Until then, let us press on in faithfulness in the worship of God. I love to think of the Lord's Day this way, and maybe this is helpful to you. I love to think of it as an international, interdimensional gathering in the highest heavens, in the special presence of God. So that when I wake up in the morning on the Lord's day, I'm thinking about how the angels are already worshiping God. The spirits of just men and women in heaven are already worshiping God. And at that point, because I'm in Pennsylvania, on earth, God's people over in Australia and Asia and Africa and Europe have joined that chorus of praise. And then I will get to join with my local church, that chorus of praise in that great gathering. And it continues on as a foretaste of that final day when there are so many that we cannot even number in the presence of Jesus worshiping him. That's what the Lord's Day is about. Beloved, that's what worship is all about. Being in the special presence of our glorious triune God. And is that not what your soul longs for? More than anything else? Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. The old covenant saints longed for this. David wrote, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. New covenant saints, we delight in the worship of Christ now by faith. Peter writes, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And we long for the day when we will see our Savior face to face.
1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The pure in heart shall see God in the highest heaven, in the union of heaven and earth forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are glorious. You are righteous. You are good. And you are so merciful and loving that you would redeem such scoundrels and scallywags as us. And not only redeem us, but bring us home to be with you forever. Oh, what a great salvation. We can't even fully comprehend it or contemplate it. But Lord, we thank you for this small glimpse you've even given us and ask that you would help us to chew and to meditate and to delight in you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.